Preliminary remark. The present essay is not animated by a desire to return to ritual. Rather, rituals serve as a background against which our present times may be seen to stand out more clearly. Avoiding nostalgia, I sketch out a genealogy of their disappearance. A disappearance which, however, I do not interpret as an emancipatory process. Along the way, the pathologies of the present day will become visible. Most of all, the erosion of community. At the same time, I offer reflections on different forms of life that might be able to free our society from its collective narcissism. 1. The Compulsion of Production Rituals are symbolic acts. They represent and pass on the values and orders on which a community is based. They bring forth a community without communication. Today, however, communication without community prevails. Rituals are constituted by symbolic perception. Symbol, Greek, symbolon, originally referred to the sign of recognition between guest friends, tessera hospitalis. One guest friend broke a clay tablet into two, kept one half for himself, and gave the other half to another as a sign of guest friendship. Thus, a symbol serves the purpose of recognition. This recognition is a particular form of repetition. But what is recognition? It is surely not merely a question of seeing something for the second time, nor does it imply a whole series of encounters. Recognition means knowing something as that with which we are already acquainted. The unique process by which man makes himself at home in the world to use a Hegelian phrase, is constituted by the fact that every act of recognition of something has already been liberated from our first contingent apprehension of it and is then raised into ideality. This is something that we are all familiar with. Recognition always implies that we have come to know something more authentically than we were able to do when caught up in our first encounter with it. Recognition elicits the permanent from the transient. Symbolic perception as recognition is a perception of the permanent. The world is shorn of its contingency and acquires durability. Today, the world is symbol-poor. Data and information do not possess symbolic force, and so do not allow for recognition. Those images and metaphors which found meaning and community and stabilize life are lost in symbolic emptiness. The experience of duration diminishes and contingency dramatically proliferates. 
we can define rituals as symbolic techniques of making oneself at home in the world. They transform being in the world into a being at home. They turn the world into a reliable place. They are to time what a home is to space. They render time habitable. They even make it accessible like a house. They structure time, furnish it. In his novel Citadel, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry describes rituals as temporal techniques of making oneself at home in the world. And our immemorial rites are in time what the dwelling is in space. For it is well that the years should not seem to wear us away and disperse us like a handful of sand. Rather, they should fulfill us. It is meet that time should be a building up. Thus, I go from one feast day to another, from anniversary to anniversary, from harvest tide to harvest tide, as, when a child, I made my way from the hall of council to the restroom within my father's palace, where every footstep had a meaning. Today, time lacks a solid structure. It is not a house, but an erratic stream. It disintegrates into a mere sequence of point-like presences. It rushes off. There is nothing to provide time with any hold. Halt. Time that rushes off is not habitable. Rituals stabilize life. To paraphrase Antoine Saint-Exupéry, we may say, rituals are in life what things are in space. For Hannah Arendt, it is the durability of things that gives them their relative independence from men. They have the function of stabilizing human life. Their objectivity lies in the fact that men, their ever-changing nature notwithstanding, can retrieve their sameness, that is, their identity, by being related to the same chair and the same table. In life, things serve as stabilizing resting points. Rituals serve the same purpose. Through their self-sameness, their repetitiveness, they stabilize life. They make life last. The contemporary compulsion to produce robs things of their endurance. It intentionally erodes duration in order to increase production, to force more consumption. Lingering, however, presupposes things that endure. If things are merely used up and consumed, there can be no lingering. And the same compulsion of production destabilizes life by undermining what is enduring in life.
thus, despite the fact One, the crisis of freedom. The exploitation of freedom. Freedom will prove to have been merely an interlude. Freedom is felt when passing from one way of living to another. Until this too, turns out to be a form of coercion. Then liberation gives way. To renewed subjugation. Such is the destiny of the subject, literally, the one who has been cast down. Today, we do not deem ourselves subjugated subjects, but rather projects, always refashioning and reinventing ourselves. A sense of freedom attends passing. From the state of subject to that of project. All the same, this projection amounts to a form of compulsion and constraint. Indeed, to a more efficient kind of subjectivation, and subjugation. As a project deeming itself free of external and alien limitations. The I is now subjugating itself to internal limitations, and self-constraints, which are taking the form of compulsive achievement, and optimization. We are living in a particular phrase phase of history. Freedom itself is bringing forth compulsion and constraint. The freedom of can generates even more coercion than the disciplinarian should, which issues commandments and prohibitions. Should has a limit. In contrast, can has none. Thus, the compulsion entailed by can is unlimited. And so we find ourselves in a paradoxical situation. Technically, freedom means the opposite of coercion and compulsion. Being free means being free from constraint. But now, freedom itself, which is supposed to be the opposite of constraint, is producing coercion. Psychic maladies such as depression and burnout express a profound crisis of freedom. They represent pathological signs that freedom is now switching over into manifold forms of compulsion. Although the achievement subject deems itself free, in reality it is a slave. Insofar as it willingly exploits itself without a master, it is an absolute slave. There is no master forcing the achievement subject to work. Yet all the same, it is absolutizing bare life and labor. 
Bare life and labor form two sides of the same coin. Health represents the ideal of bare life. Today's neoliberal slave lacks the sovereignty, indeed, the freedom of the master who, according to Hegel's dialectic, performs no labor at all and only enjoys. For Hegel, the sovereignty of the master derives from his rising above bare life and risking death itself in the process. Such excess, living and enjoying beyond measure, is alien to the slave who worries only about bare life. But counter to what Hegel assumed, laboring does not make the slave free. The slave remains enslaved to labor. Now, the slave is forcing the master to work too. Today's dialectic of master and slave means the totalization of labor. As the entrepreneur of its own self, the neoliberal subject has no capacity for relationships with others that might be free of purpose. Nor do entrepreneurs know what purpose-free friendship would even look like. Originally, being free meant being among friends. Freedom and friendship have the same root in Indo-European languages. Fundamentally, freedom signifies a relationship. A real feeling of freedom occurs only in a fruitful relationship, when being with others brings happiness. But today's neoliberal regime leads to utter isolation. As such, it does not really free us at all. Accordingly, the question now is whether we need to redefine freedom to reinvent it in order to escape from the fatal dialectic that is changing freedom into coercion. Neoliberalism represents a highly efficient, indeed an intelligent system for exploiting freedom. Everything that belongs to practices and expressive forms of liberty, emotion, play, and communication comes to be exploited. It is inefficient to exploit people against their will. Allo exploitation yields scant returns. Only when freedom is exploited are returns maximized. It is interesting to note that Marx also defines freedom in terms of a successful relationship to others. Only in community with others does each individual have the means of cultivating his gifts in all directions. Only in the community, therefore, is personal freedom possible. From this perspective, being free means nothing other than self-realization with others. 
Freedom is synonymous with a work- working community, i.e., a successful one. For Marx, individual freedom represents a ruse, a trick of capital. Free competition, which is based on the idea of individual freedom, simply amounts to the relation of capital to itself as another capital. I.e., the real conduct of capital as capital. Capital reproduces by entering into relations with itself as another form of capital through free competition. It copulates with the other of itself by way of individual freedom. Capital grows inasmuch as people engage in free competition. Hereby, individual freedom amounts to servitude inasmuch as capital lays hold of it and uses it for its own propagation. That is, capital exploits individual freedom in order to breed. It is not the individuals who are set free by free competition. It is rather capital which is set free. The freedom of capital achieves self realization by way of individual freedom. In the process, individuals degrade into the genital organs of capital. Individual freedom lends it. An automatic subjectivity of its own, which spurs it to reproduce actively. In this way, capital continuously brings forth living offspring. Today, individual freedom is taking on excessive forms. Ultimately, this amounts to nothing other than the excess of capital itself. The dictatorship of capital. At a certain level of development, according to Marx, the forces of production, human labor, modes of work, and the material means available come into conflict with the dominant relations of production, conditions of ownership and domination. Contradiction arises. Because the forces of production never stop evolving. Thus, industrialization brings forth new forces of production that come into conflict with structures of ownership and government that still resemble feudal conditions. In turn, this contradiction entails social crises, pushes to change the relations of production. For Marx, the contradiction is to be eliminated by way of the proletariat's struggle against the bourgeoisie, which will bring forth a communist social order. But counter to what Marx assumed, communist revolution cannot resolve the contradiction between forces of production and relations of production. The contradiction admits no dialectical off-hebung. 
Capitalism can always escape into the future precisely because it harbors permanent and inherent contradiction. Accordingly, industrial capitalism has now mutated into neoliberalism and financial capitalism, which are implementing a post-industrial, immaterial mode of production. Instead of turning into communism, as a mutant form of capitalism, neoliberalism transforms workers into entrepreneurs. It is not communist revolution that is now abolishing the alloy-exploited working class. Instead, neoliberalism is in the course of doing so. Today, everyone is an auto-exploiting laborer in his or her own enterprise. People are now master and slave in one. Even class struggle has transformed into an inner struggle against oneself. The cooperative multitude that Antonio Negri has exalted. As the post-Marxist successor to the proletariat, does not describe the contemporary mode of production. Rather, conditions are defined by the solitude of an entrepreneur who is isolated and self-combating, and practices auto-exploitation voluntarily. As such, it is a mistake to believe. That the cooperative multitude will overthrow the parasitic empire and bring forth a communist social order. The Marxist scheme to which Negri adheres will prove to have been yet another illusion. In fact, no pro proletariat exists under the neoliberal regime at all. There is no working class being exploited by those who own the means of production. When production is immaterial, everyone already owns the means of production, him or herself. The neoliberal system is no longer a class system in the proper sense. It does not consist of classes that display mutual antagonism. This is what accounts for the system's stability. Today, the distinction between proletariat and bourgeoisie no longer holds either. Literally, proletarian means someone whose sole possessions are his or her children. Self-production is restricted to biological reproduction. But now the illusion prevails that every person, as a project free to fashion him or herself at will, is capable of unlimited self-production.